Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Lewis Goldberg of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis industry forward. This week, Lewis is running solo and speaks with writer and filmmaker Donick Carey, whose film Have a Good Trip, out on Netflix right now, documents scores of celebrities and their best stories about having psychedelic experiences. Donick is a well-known figure around Hollywood, having written for The David Letterman Show, The Simpsons, Silicon Valley, and Parks and Recreation. This is one you do not want to miss. So don't sit back, lean forward. Now onto our conversation with Lewis Goldberg and Donick Carey. Donick, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. And I owe my wife, Melissa, a huge debt of gratitude for introducing us. Um, it's really cool for you to join me on The Green Rush. Thrilled to be here. Great to meet you. Uh, it brought back lots of fond memories of college adventures with Melissa and, and uh, great to be here. Um, you just released an amazing new documentary um, on Netflix called Have a Good Trip. What is it about? Why did you do this? And, you know, tell me, tell me all about, like, tell me about the film, even though I've seen it. Yep. Tell my fan, you know, tell, tell the bajillions of people who are watching us now on YouTube about <laughs> yes. your film. Hey, uh, Green Report fans, here's what it green is. Rush. Green Rush. I, sorry, Green. It looks like there's a green R behind you. Sorry. Let me, re, let me restate that. Okay. Hey, okay. Green Rush fans, this is what we did. So it's called Have a Good Trip, Adventures in Psychedelics. This really came about um, kind of randomly. I'm a comedy writer first and writer-producer, shows like The Simpsons and Parks and Rec and um, Letterman and stuff. and I was at the Nantucket Film Festival where I, I grew up on Nantucket. I'm a board member of the festival. And I was having a conversation with Ben Stiller, who happens to also be on the board, and, and also Fisher Stevens, who is releasing The Cove that year at the festival. This is 11 oh, years great ago. Great film. Great film. And uh, I was really impressed because I was like, but you're just like an actor, right? And he's like, well, I'm doing docs now. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. You moved into docs. And um, he just did the help produce The Tiger King, by the way, also. So he's done all sorts of docs. Um, but Ben Ben shared a story about taking LSD when he was a teenager, and it was so funny. And then Fisher was like, oh, wait, I have a story. And then he shared this story that was so funny and interesting and weird and revealing. And I shared a couple of stories. And, and it was this wonderful lunch feeling of just like the way the aristocrats was a whole bunch of people sharing one joke together. Oh, my God. One of my favorite films. So, so great. So groundbreaking in a way, which was like, oh, all these people can kind of get together, even though they weren't together and have this shared experience through this one joke. I was like, mm -hmm. oh, what a cool. Why don't we kind of borrow that idea with storytelling about psychedelics? And 11 years ago, it really felt like a taboo subject that like it was so surprising that Ben would share that story with us. But then you know, agree to be in this doc and share it in a more public way. We were, I was sort of like, oh, usually you find comedy when you poke into those areas that create discomfort or are rarely talked about, whether it's, you know, that's why there's always sex jokes and stuff. Cause as a culture, we don't quite know how to deal with sex. It's so crazy. We don't know, you know, um, so yeah, pain, was it, it's pain plus time equals comedy. Yes. There's some of that. Um, it felt like bad trips, but also, you know, as I got into a good trips also, but I initially went in going like, let's dig into bad trips and, and funny trips and see what people, what happened to them, because this would be a great, easy place for me to bring this stuff to life with animation. You can transport through time with animation and not have actors dressing up as Buddy Holly or whatever. And you can, you can um, also bring to life dragons or whatever happened or, you know, mm -hmm. like people turning into a baby and talking to uh, you know, God or whatever, whatever <laughs> happened to them. It doesn't matter, you know? And so it sort of came out of that of like, oh, this could be kind of funny. But um, as we started to interview people, it quickly, a, a couple interesting things happened. First of all, as an interviewer, you, you know, you exercise empathy when you talk to people and just try to really get inside their heads. Now, when you're getting inside somebody else's head, when they're, they're intimately sharing their trips and what their brain revealed on psychedelics, 
you start to, your brain starts to get a little psychedelic thing. And, you know, I would, I would do these interviews and then have to shake them off and go like, oh, I have to go pick the kids up from school. Like, I can't be in this weird, like, headspace, yeah. headspace. even though I'm not doing drugs, I'm kind of getting off on these other stories. I was like, oh, that's kind of an interesting thing. Maybe part of this movie is sharing people's experiences is letting people have these vicarious trips and, and learning what these people learned, whether good or bad or whatever. So that was kind of this cool, like, oh, we're actually not just sharing stories that people can view, but we're sort of opening people's brains that people can climb into in a weird way. Um, so that was fun to discover. And then the other thing we discovered right away with interviews was a lot of these trips were transformative, uh, life-changing, you know, revelatory. So people were sharing these things that you're often not even sure about or maybe embarrassed about or didn't realize they were kind of not only just sharing like a funny story and intimate bringing us into their homes, but they were kind of opening their brains and going like, I don't know, man, this is what happened when I, I did whatever they did, you know? So that was a cool mix. And you started it, you said 11 years ago when, you know, psychedelics were not part of the common discourse. They are now, you know, you yeah. see stories on 60 Minutes. Michael Pollan's book was number one bestseller for a very long time on, on the New York Times list. You know, it's it's everywhere. Why do you think it's having a moment? You know, or is this or is this not a moment, but the logical evolution of where we should be as a society? Yeah, I mean, a, th a number of things I think are converging. You know, there, there's there's number one to me is there's a mental health crisis in this country. There's also a number of other crises going on in this country that we don't have ready answers for that contribute to mental health, whether it's global pandemics or global devastation, environmental devastation. There are these existential threats and, and things that we don't have, we don't know how to wrap our heads around. And these drugs help us wrap our heads around things that are, are, are complicated in sometimes profound ways that are hard to get to through, you know, that you can through years of therapy or months of therapy, but um, the, the, so anyway, one of the things I think that's happening is this mental health crisis, and it's that's caused by a lot of things. We need help there. These drugs might help us there. Um, the other thing is like you were saying, time plus tragedy. It's time plus pain. Yeah, tragedy yeah. plus plus time equals comedy. There, there is something about we've had enough time where. You know, everyone got scared after the 60s. Establishment went like, whoa, naked people. And like, let's, easy guys. You can do this at dead shows. We'll give you that. But other than that, like, let's, let's, let's get back to Reagan's America, you know? Um, I think societally we've, we've, we bought into that for a long time and that hasn't led us to any real solutions. We've all had faith in the stock markets to solve our problems and all of these things that just haven't, fixed things. There's still homeless people. Like some of the most basic things that you would think leaning into money would give us have not worked. So we, we start to have that. There's this, there's this, um, opportunity for spiritual awakenings happening. That's sort of like, Oh, you know, money may not be the only God that we can find. Maybe there's things in ourselves. We don't know. Maybe there's, you know, other ways of looking at the world, reminding ourselves that we have to, you know, look through other people's eyes to fix things. Um, so that's how, there's been enough time, I think, that the hysteria that was caused in the 60s and the pushback with the war on drugs and just say no has sort of died out enough while the marijuana revolution happened. And it's I think people are starting to go like, oh, yeah, we're OK. It's OK that there's there's marijuana out there. It doesn't affect me or it really helped my friend or anecdotally like I had a little bit and I was fine, you know, whatever, like that that has laid the foundation for us to start to have a rational conversation again. And really was what, what we hoped the positive part of this movie was, I mean, our, our mission was let's entertain first, let's share some funny stuff, but let's also hopefully contribute to this thing that we grew up under, which was you can't even talk about these drugs. If you even take a drug, you'll jump out a window. Like that, that was irrational. Like I, yeah, I, I loved know. the uh, after school special thing that you did. I mean, it was, it was really, as a child of the '80s, you know we are we are of the same generation. It seemed it seemed so spot on, um, and I know that there there were after school specials about LSD and and all the other you know bad drugs. Yeah, um, you know, as a comedy writer, was it just pure joy to be able to poke fun at those parts of your childhood? 
Yes, for sure. I mean, that's, it's, it, you know, like there's a little bit of a guilty pleasure and, and guilty, whatever. It's just going like, it's low hanging fruit. It's easy to make fun of those. It's easy to make fun of like, even pulling out the, this is your brain on drug thing again. But I was like, oh, I got Nick Offerman and like, I got to do this joke with him. I, I can't resist, you know? Um, but also the bigger point to me was, as you, as you did, I grew up in this world where that's what culture was telling us, you know, like the, the adults in the room were sort of saying like, you, you'll jump out a window, don't even talk about it. And yet I was going to everything from dead shows to dead Kennedy shows and seeing that there was a psychedelic space in these worlds and people looking at the world through, and then reading books, you know, um, Fear and Loathing and on the, on the road even, but, um, you know, Burroughs and Carlos Castaneda and stuff as a teenager and kind of going like, well, there's more here than just say no. And these drugs are, I can tell from the cocaine that's around that this is a different experience than that. And that the and your heart drug- won't stop from taking LSD or mushrooms, whereas right. you could literally have a Len bias moment and do cocaine and die. You yes. Know? And as someone who grew up as a Celtics fan, uh, still a Celtics fan, that, 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 that resonated. I was like, okay, done. No more cocaine. I just played <laughs> Celtics for 10 years, maybe more. Anyway. The, fir- the first guy you interview in the movie is Sting. And he he gives you a tremendous amount of time and is unbelievably honest and disclosed. And you have dozens of unbelievable A-list celebrities, you know, across the board from Deepak Chopra to Sarah Silverman. Talk about the moment where you walk up to Sting and say, hey, I'm doing a documentary on psychedelics. And I want you to be on camera talking about your experiences. How, play that out for me. Yeah, so this is um, this is a little bit of a, a tough thing, and I, I think this has become a rule in my life, which is like you got to ask ten times to get one thing to happen, right? And celebrities talking about psychedelics is is a tough get. So you know, like we started with, I knew I had been, I thought that might open some doors with with, with people, and in my mind, that was going to be oh, the top ten funniest comedians ever are going to just absolutely do this because you know, like we'll just get Will Ferrell and, and Seth Rogen and, you know, um, Sarah Silverman and, you know, just like really funny people will share these things. What I found was a lot of people have deals with the Disney company or they are raising children or they're, you know, they're, they're newly sober and don't want to talk about any drugs and kind of lump this in with that. And then there were, there's a hundred reasons to say no. And there, what can you, A, you can't get them to do it if they say no, but also respectfully, don't share if you don't want to share. This is a very personal experience, you know? Um, so we ended up hiring a uh, talent booker. We sent out letters to everybody we had any connections to. So we had a, you know, a foundation of people who we could ask directly. But Sting was not one of those. That was what through the talent booker we sent out. And I'd get these emails like on Monday that would say like, okay, Sting has said he'll do it February 3rd next year. Uh, Carrie, uh, you know, like... Um, uh, Carrie Fisher. Okay, yeah, Carrie Fisher's available Tuesday at four, and Ozzy can do it today if you can get to his house. Uh, but you got to be there by three o'clock or whatever, and you'd be like, uh, "Okay, let's go Wait, talk." Did to you George. actually interview Ozzy because he wasn't in the film? Yes, we did interview Ozzy. Ozzy uh, politely asked to he. Ozzy's an interesting character. Um, his, you know, this is one of those places where I think he's done a lot of work in the, in the, in the, in the sober space, in trying to get sober. He's had mm-hmm. demons with a lot of different drugs. I think he wasn't really sure if he was trying to tell kids to stay off drugs with our interview, <laughs> or if he was sharing funny stories, or if he was, you know, he was rambling for a while. We got a really funny, interesting, fun story, some on LSD, and then, and then him kind of trying to give a just say no message, but like also going like, I don't think I want to do that. I'm not the guy. And then he's like, I don't think I want to be in it. And we're like, all good. You know, like, yeah. let me show you how it would be fun if you want to be part of it. But if not, all good. Um, on the flip side, same day, I interviewed Carrie Fisher and like she brought us into her house. You know, no one has to, has to sign a release either once they've talked to you, you know, like we spent four hours at her house she showed us around. She's like, look at my stuff. This is how I see the world. It's all because of psychedelics. Uh, she talked about mental health and being bipolar and other drugs that were her mm-hmm. downfall. She you know, made distinctions between heroin and opiates and, and psychedelics and how different those were. And some were good for her and bad for her. All that stuff. Unbelievably intimate, wonderful afternoon for her. And she was like, go do your thing. This is great. I loved it. Ozzy, 
didn't want it. You know, anyway, Sting was one of those ones where I was like, they were like February 3rd, 2000, whatever year it was. I was like, put on the calendar. We'll be in New York. We'll go meet him. So I didn't really know what to expect. Some people I could do a pre-interview with and kind of get a sense of what they, where their head was. And some I couldn't. And you're not sure if you're going in and, and, and somebody might be like, I hate drugs. Don't do drugs. Or these changed my life. Or they have a concise, funny story. You know, psychedelics don't necessarily lead to concise, funny stories always. You know, there's <laughs> often a series of- concise, funny experiences. So why would they be concise, funny stories? Right, right. You know, and how do you, how do you bring back from those adventures, you know, catchphrases and act breaks that like will, will animate, you know, or whatever. So um, I went in with Sting, you know, I'd go into all of these with a very open mind, you know, the, the general idea was they're going to share a story with us about something they did. And, and Sting was great. He had a couple very clear stories of, uh, you know, things that, that had changed his life and changed his perspective. Um, our conversation after that, you know, I would usually focus in on a few details that I thought we might want to highlight a little more, more description, whatever. And, and then, and then really just talk about the psychedelic experience with them and if it changed their life or if they had any more. And, and Sting, that just opened this hour long conversation where he, he he had so many great things to say and he was one of the first interview you know in the in the first 10 people I talked to um and was you know so passionate about you know the 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 space and 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 defining it as a medicine and not a drug and as a tool that that can when done correctly and and with care and caution that it can be transformative and just really kind of reframing it as like I have some funny stories I definitely have a sense of humor, which he, he did, and he was wonderful that way. But also, I also want to talk about this seriously and not take it lightly. And, and that was that really helped shape help us shape this. And I think you did a good job of, of mixing the humor and the science. Um, and you had Dr. Grob from UCLA. Um, how much other research did you do? Did you talk with Michael Pollan? Did you talk with the guys from Imperial College, like Robin Carhart Harris, or or the the, the Johns Hopkins researchers? And and how much did that inform as you were putting this together the the real science behind psychedelics into the, to the structure of the film? Yeah. So the the um we as this was happening, you know, studies were coming out every two years, like we're, we're in editing and or starting editing and suddenly like John Hopkins just released this thing. Oh, my God. Um, this revolution has sort of been morphing. And, you know, and when stuff would come out, even drunk history came out while we were doing this. I was like, no, that's what we're doing. And then I was like, actually, we're not doing drunk history. That's that's yeah. drunk people. We're doing sober people talking about their brains, not drunk people talking about history. Totally different thing, even though it's reenactments. Um, when Michael Pollan's book came out, I was like, it was kind of what we were editing in a weird way was instead of, I had this lineup of people sharing experiences on different drugs and what it did for them. And I was like, well, that's what he did. But we have Sting and Carrie Fisher, like this is the way he beat us to it. And then I was like, Not, no one beat anyone to it. It's all good. These are all personal journeys and, and explorations. Mm -hmm. um, as far as the research, you know, we would read all of those. There's so much in this space to cover. And, you know, we started with, with, with um, we did a, what I thought was a cool animation of Albert Hoffman discovering LSD. We did some prehistoric civilizations, just, you know, working with it. We, um, you know, in- Like the Paul Stamets uh, stoned ape theory. Stoned ape theory. We started doing like shamanism in, in Central America and South America. Um, and then we started to tell the history of like Cary Grant and therapy in the 50s. And then we started to, you know, we had this timeline of history that we were telling. And then we got into the Grateful Dead and what they did, they kept this thing alive in a safe space through the 80s and 90s when there no one else was, you know, like we're, we're and then scientists like Charles Grobe in 92 were able to do a trial and we were doing this thing and it got very dry, you know, trying to tell this history. And I also started to go like, for each part of that, I would watch another documentary. Maybe not, maybe the documentaries weren't huge yet, but I would mm -hmm. either read someone else's report or, or a documentary. I was like, well, those exist already. <laughs> like you can go find that. If you're really interested in learning about Cary Grant, watch Cary Grant's documentary. They did an amazing job um, explaining what psychedelics were for him. I don't have to, we don't have to do that with this. And I did, I ended up doing about a hundred interviews and it was really a challenge to go like, I think the strength we have is real people telling real stories. Let's carve out as much space in this, tap on all the stuff that's going on, but stick to that, that core, which is let's share these real people and real stories, as many as we can. And 
we also made the choice at a certain point to go like, let's just take these 50 out of it for now, save them for a part two. You know, there's wonderful people we interviewed, right. like Patton Oswald has great stories. It's so funny. Um, or David Crosby. Well, he must have I, used, I can see because the pain, you know, Patton's been really disclosed about the pain he yes. suffered when his wife died. And I would, I don't know anything about his use of psychedelics, but I would assume that he used them after to help try and heal himself. He's, I don't he, know. He's also just somebody who explores his own psyche for comedy. He mm -hmm. always has. And this is another tool that does that in in, a, in big ways. Like he's always been about, let's poke and look at this from a hundred directions. So it's an interesting perspective because that's like his life's work really, you know? He's looking for laughs, but also healing pain is, is that combo, you know? Um, mm -hmm. But also like David Crosby had an incredibly open, interesting interview with him. Members of The Doors, you know, like all these different places. Mm -hmm. And I was like, let's stop. Let's not try to get everybody in this for one, you know, 30 seconds. Let's like really sit with Sting and let that breathe and then do another thing with David Crosby and let him tell his story, you know? Right. Um, so, so that was a little bit of a, you know, juggling act. But to answer your question, we read all the stuff we wanted. We wanted to be a, you know, let these stories help normalize the conversation. Go like, here's some people you would never even think about this. Destigmatize it. None of these people, you know, like, jumped out a window essentially is like many of them learned big things some made mistakes let's share those mistakes you mm -hmm. don't have to make those mistakes by the way you don't even have to take these it might not be about you you know what i mean like these are these are tools that should be out there for everyone to consider you know not necessarily dive into you focused almost exclusively on lsd and on mushrooms but there are so many other drugs and you know ayahuasca is a well-known um, uh, drug, you know, is basically DMT. And there are other drugs. You know, Mike Tyson talks about his experiences with 5-MeO DMT. Why didn't you look at any of the others? And, and why did you folks focus almost exclusively on, you know, LSD and on, and on psilocybin? Um, in a weird way, it was a little easier to corral in the movie. You know, we at one point we were looking at doing, which would, be, would have been a lot more like Michael Pollan's book. And honestly, when it came out, we kind of started to restructure away from this. But we were doing a thing where like the chapter cards were, were LSD stories, mushroom stories, you know. Um, but ultimately, it felt a little like, um, again, some of that's been out there like people have explored it, whether it's Michael Pollan or whatever, all, all of those things share some DNA and, and propel people towards similar understanding. So it started to feel less important to, you know, like Sting shares a peyote story, for example. I was like, that's great. But it, it didn't get in the movie because it was a peyote story. It got in the movie because it was an interesting exploration. You know, um, uh, we had, we had some, um, the Shepard Fairey story is a pop brownie story. Um, we, we decided, we didn't really go deeply into Shepard's story, so we decided just like, it's okay. This one happens to be, you know, but he, he had, his brain was doing a lot of exploration, you know, and it felt like as long as you're digging in and examining that when you come out of it, that's what we want to explore. Um, you know, we had, we also, we had also talked about, we were going to do a thing with Eric Andre where he, takes all the different drugs we could think of throughout the, throughout the movie and that we have these actually sort of real life check-ins. Um, but then that, you know, we were also careful not to, we didn't want to be cavalier with this stuff, you know, and, and just like keep, keep it in a, I, I think the conversation has helped the more we can have rational, responsible presentation rather than like, woo, here's the crazy things that happen, you know? Now we have some of that for sure, but, and that's part of it, but. You know, you mentioned, you know, a few minutes ago, the issue of shamanism, right? Um, and there is this tension between the science and the medicine side of psychedelics and the indigenous nature of it and the shamans. Did that ever come into your thinking of, do we have to show respect to the history of this stuff? Or is it really, we just want to stay with the experience? Um, I, you know, I, this is a little bit of a cop-out, but I kind of was like, these are the storytellers we ended up getting. These are the experiences they had. You know, Sting talks about going to Mexico and working with clearly some version of a shamanistic experience and working with somebody as a guide and stuff. But I just used what he shared of that. I didn't, I didn't, you know, um, it's funny. I've been shooting a documentary in that involves Native America and all of its different forms around 
what is the USA Today and wh what their place is and how they see themselves. And, and almost every one of those, there's 562 federally recognized tribes, almost every, every one of them has a spiritual practice that involves some sort of psychedelic and has always been that way. And it, they're just sort of like, whatever, this is what we do. Um, and, and, and hasn't been publicizing it or caring, but, you know, like, um, it, it felt like unless somebody shared a story that explored that, then why, why jump into it right now? I, you know, our hope is that, that, um, that, that we maybe do a series after this with Netflix is that we come out of this and maybe use the 50 other stories we shot and also other ones. There were people like Dave Grohl who was like, dude, I got a story I got to share. And we just never quite got it on tape, you know, so so there's some of those that were I and, and then I would hope in series that we could tackle some of these things that we didn't necessarily get into and and talk about some of those gray gray areas with whether it's shamanism or not that that's a gray area but just that's a that's a big practice that that needs time to talk about you know um, or what DM, DMT does or you know like what ketamine is and and uh, you know the distinctions and it's just you know we didn't want to bog down with too much of that and in the in the film. No, and it was, and you know, honestly, I loved it. Um, and as somebody who is involved in the industry, in the industry, right, the business side of this, it was a great way to help um, destigmatize because you have uh, a lot of, of, I mean, it's all A-listers, right? It's everybody that anybody knows. Um, you know, Nick Offerman plays the scientist role there. Did he did he not have a story to tell, or was that something that he just this is my role, and I, it doesn't matter what I've done in my life? There's a little, there was a little bit of like, you know, like, um, you know, people who are friends, and I could just talk to, and I'm like, oh, I'd love them in the movie, um, and then kind of feeling stuff out and going like, doesn't feel like he wants to talk about psychedelics, but I don't want to not have him in the movie because of that. So then, it, then it was like, well, maybe we should have a scientist. And maybe it should be Nick. Like things like that would just come up and they're like, okay, let's just do that. You know, Adam Scott, I was like, it, he will blow this thing out of the water if, if, I, if I write it. And, he, and if I give it to him and he says, yes, we're in, like, that's going to be so fun. So, you know, that stuff just was like, um, you know, I guess another example like um, is uh, Brett Gelman. And Brett, Brett Gelman is, you know, great. He's in Strange, Stranger Things. And, you know, he's a really funny guy. He came and played the acorn. We thought of him when, when Carrie Fisher talks about a misbehaving acorn. And we're like, well, let's have, let's cast someone as that acorn. Let's have them have some lines and talk. Like, that's a pretty wide open area for a funny person to work with. Work with it is, you're going to be an acorn who yells at Carrie Fisher, go. Like, let's have fun with that. <laughs> Um, and Brett Gelman was like an, uh, sort of an obvious, like, oh my God, that'd be the dream person to be this hallucination. Now, when Brett was done, I was like, Hey, can we just talk about your experiences? And I, I sat with Brett and he had, he has an unbelievable Grateful Dead story that is like, it's so like, I hate the word epic has been overused, but it's so epic and tell it's, it's like, it's the end of the Grateful Dead. It's the end of like the second dream you know, and it's mm -hmm. the middle of the 90s and it's like things are just becoming Wall Street and he's in the parking lots and things are on fire and he just starts to see this guy at three or four shows um, whose name was, I, I'm gonna, uh, we'll, we'll get the story in somewhere, but this guy was, he was like, Brett was having a bad trip and looking for any kind of reality and this guy kept just showing up and going like, you know, Brett, the reason things are on fire it's way worse than we thought. There are actually aliens here. And Brett's like, ha ha, right? And he's like, no, no, I'm fucking serious. And he was on enough acid that he was like, don't, I don't want, and he's like, these aliens aren't good. They want us to die. Just he would kept constantly telling Brett stuff. But it's- And they're all named Donald Trump. <laughs> yes, yes, pod pod people from, from Trump, Trump land. But he, he, that story was so funny. And I was like, oh, that's going to be a six minute. The only way to do this is set the whole scene and do this. So- you know, Brett worked his way into the movie, had a couple great catchphrases from that interview, so we put those in. But I also want to do, you know, find a place to do that bigger story. Um, so, but Nick, you know, Nick didn't want to, didn't have anything obvious to share. And, and you know, that's kind of where that went. You know, you must, you said you had 50 interviews that didn't make it in. What was the hardest one? What was the, the thing that ended on the cutting room floor? And you're like, no! And then you're like, eh, well, you know, I can't. I mean, we have a, we have a, we, I, 
we, there were a couple that we had taken all the way through reenactments. Um, one of those was, um, one of those was Bootsy Collins has, has a pretty amazing story working with James yeah. Brown and, and his early, his early awakening to psychedelic funk. And it's, you know, that music means a lot to me. Bootsy has me meant too. a lot to me. So for me, I was like, well, that's one of the top stories, but they all, they all are when you get down to it. So that's one that, that we got to find a place for. The other one like that is um, I, I had amazing interviews with both Jerry Casale and Mark Mothersbaugh from Devo. So the two sort of creative, you know, mm-hmm. like, like centers of Devo. And, you know, those, they, they met at Kent State. They were there for the Kent State shootings. They grew up as sort of like flower power is literally being crushed what are we going to do? Oh, let's come up with this theory of de-evolution where, you know, we're starting to devolve as humans and we'll call it Devo and we'll, you know, them talking about what psychedelics meant to how they saw the world and where they took that was really this bridge between flower power and punk rock and new wave and, and a 20 year hunk of psychedelic thinking that we don't explore enough, you know, and, and, um, mm-hmm. and I just, I also love them and followed them for years. So, um, but Mark has an amazing story that we animated about, um, going to studio 54 with Michael Jackson and Andy Warhol. So it's full of celebrities, but it's a PCP story. So it's full of hallucinations, but it also was slightly off topic and, just a bad PCP is a PCP is a psychedelic. It's just not the psychedelic that we all think about, right? right. Um, uh, Carl Hart, who is a researcher at Columbia, um, talks of, and I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he's really absolutely fascinating. Talks about the difference between you know how African Americans use drugs and how white people use drugs, and ultimately it's a it's a um, a class issue and PCP was just a cheaper version of some of these psychedelics that was available. You, you mentioned Bootsy. I, if I remember correctly, you only really had one interview with an African-American in uh, the film. You know, were there other people of color that you wanted to include that just got cut or, or because it, you know, it's funny. It felt very white to me. Sure. I mean, look, you know, like, a, there's a there's a little bit I think even Rob Corddry says when we did the Grateful Dead section he's like I mean I'm white I like the Grateful Dead it, it's fine that that the you know like a lot of this experience has been a a white you know um, has has been explored through a white lens you know from it from mm-hmm. the bubble of of these different you know these, these bubbles that we've built over the years you know like a lot of the great brooks whether it's hunter thompson or carlos castaneda or you know i guess is carlos castaneda latino i don't i don't even know um i don't but, know you know um the I'll, mary I'll call Pran- him up and ask him the, right the the merry pranksters were all white the grateful dead were all white like so, some of these things that have pulled this along timothy leary the, the studies at harvard you know the people they tested on whether it was ken kesey or you know like we're white people so a lot of this birth of this came out of that um we have we we actually it's you know we have a great interview with asap rocky who talks about the urban the way it's been defined and the, and the fear that he had of it um you know also just talking with other people just like getting inside of the african-american experience and going like okay you're going to be on lsd and walking around and a cop comes up to you what does that look like through your eyes compared to the trust fund oh kid God. who's just going to a dead show like and a cop comes up to you and you're like hey man it's cool like you're you're not you, you know it that could be a nightmare american culture is a different kind of nightmare if when you put on different you know like lenses um so I don't, I, I don't know, but we also had a great interviews with Reggie Watts, who's in the movie. He's yeah, got he's some, fabulous. He's fabulous and, and has some great stories we'd love to also get out. And he's, he's a, a real advocate for the space. Um, you know, that was also just kind of a luck of the draw. I mean, we definitely wanted as much diversity as, 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 as you can. We decided to sh- sh- save Bootsy, not because he was black or white or, you know, like it just sort of was like, well, Carrie Fisher's got to be in. This is amazing. Uh, Sting's got to be in. We were trying to find stories that complemented each other, and it, you know, some of that was was luck of the draw and how many people we got talking about it. Um, One of my favorite conversations you had was with Anthony Bourdain, and it, it is, it hurts me every time I think about him um, because he was planning to be a board member of one of the bigger cannabis companies right and literally 
right before he killed himself, he was he had accepted the board membership, which would have changed a lot of the conversations around cannabis because he speaks to everybody. He is not a person on the left or a person on the right. He is an authentic human being. And Carrie Fisher also. So you you know, two of the people you interview are gone. Was there a moment when you were making this film and, and about to release it, you're like, God, I really like, I wish I'd done it faster so that Anthony could have done part of this or Carrie could have seen it. I mean, how did those two people impact on you as you were making the film, especially once they died? Yeah, I mean, both of those, I mean, again, like almost everybody we interviewed, like I, I'll give you like an obscure one for, for a big audience is like, we talked to Mike Watt from the Minutemen for hours and, you know, bass player, he's amazing. I was, I love his story so much. He ended up not being in the movie at all, totally fine. Um, but I love that. I love getting to sit with him and talk and what he shared. All of these people had a little bit of that. Carrie and Anthony were both very special that way. I'm, I'm fans of theirs, you know, like, like their work. I think um, uh, there was a little bit of a, there was a moment where we were like, oh God, does this mean we can't use, use them? You know, like, does this mean we just put this away? Does this date the movie at all? Does this you know, somehow is, is it negative that they're talking about their psychedelic experiences? And then it, what really came as I watched their footage over and over and over and edited and worked on different versions of it was this sort of, um, sort of this wonderful thing because, I, you know, I love them. The way we were using them was them sharing stories that they were passionate about. They're both great storytellers. They're both really open. I mean, Anthony was the first person I sat down and was like, oh, he's got a beginning, middle, and end. He just rattled off this thing that was amazing, full of, you know, like dramatic turns and, you know, like um, sound bites. And, you know, like he's just crafted that way. Carrie, the other end of the spectrum, she was like, I can't tell an orderly story. Here we go. She told 400 <laughs> snippets of 400 moments in 400 places. Um, and then it was like, all right, we'll find something. But that they were really honest about who they were, you know, too, through those. I, I ultimately felt like, wow, we have these things that they really cared about. We have these bits of footage of these people we've lost that they can, that people haven't seen yet. That this is this wonderful gift that they gave us without thinking about it. That like David Bowie is releasing music now. I'm like, what a genius. He's good in more ways than we knew um, is that they left behind these things. And it's now kind of our responsibility to share that um, and not in an exploitative way in any way. It was just like, we have it like, please everybody look what we got this guilty you know this uh sort of wonderful thing we have to share um these great places that they both they both sitting with anthony i mean when he started i didn't know he was going to talk about hunter thompson but i was like well that's kind of where i started was i read fear and loathing and went like oh this is a way of looking at the world as you just plow in and tear it apart and look at it from every mm -hmm. side and then report back on what you're learning always, you know, like whether that's a hundred percent true, but tell the reality through whatever, whatever you saw, you know, and Anthony always did that. And he's all about connecting with people and breaking down walls and sharing food and music and culture. And, you know, I think a lot of what the psychedelic experience reminds us of are those things is that we're all made of the same stuff. You're supposed to share experiences that we're all, mm -hmm. you know, humans and nature is part of that travel was all about that was like, look at this fucking planet that we have. You know, he was, he was a, a you know, a warrior in that of reminding us of these you know, core important things. How did this change you? How did this, this journey to make this film, what did it do to you? Um, that's a great, it's a great question in that I think it's the first question that I don't, like I don't, there's not something that immediately pops to head. Um, I think that- well, Let me rephrase it, let me reframe it then, how yeah. about that? Um, you talk to 100 plus people about their experiences. Um, and when we were talking about this, about having you come on and chat with me, you said, oh, I haven't tripped since, you know, back in college. As you were going through this, was there this feeling in you that says, you know, maybe I should go back and revisit this. Maybe this is something that I need to do to better understand the experience that I'm talking about. Yeah. So, um, I mean, a couple things, I think, I think what I learned in experiments and I did have an ayahuasca experience about 15 years ago in the jungle. And, you know, that was sort of a refresher course through mm -hmm. a slightly different lens and a different place, but also a very serious setting, you know, with a shaman and the whole thing. Um, and very therapeutic. I mean, the way it was presented was, you're gonna take this and then the animals from the jungle will come to you and then we'll see what they reveal. And it was sort of like, 
a way to analyze feelings and thoughts and and stuff. And I was like, oh, that's really therapy that that they're 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 doing here. This is a different thing. Um, it was a reminder that a lot of the things that I learned, uh, you know, and, and things that were sort of. Um, you know, you, you have you have like a gut feeling that there's certain things in life that you should pursue or that it's okay to pursue or it's okay to be yourself. And then psychedelics for me really like reinforced those or kind of like took you to a bigger place to go like, right, no, no, that inclination is right. Lean towards that. Um, mm-hmm. But you don't always have to be on psychedelics to do, to, to feel those. It was a reminder of a lot of those core things that like, you know, I'm, I'm well into parenthood and raising kids and, and trying to figure out what are the values you pass on and going like, oh, right, there's these certain things. If you treat other people the way you want to be treated, that's like a core thing that we just don't work on enough in, as society. Like these mental health problems in a big way are like could be fixed if we spent more time on, on like a war, on, on training empathy in school, that there's not a class in empathy. There's a class in history and England and like, yeah, we should know history, but like if we added this layer of empathy to history, oh my God, like what would that do? You know, like that we, yeah. we haven't leaned into those things enough. So there was a little bit of a re- reminder of some of those things to be more of an advocate and, and more of a teacher with my kids about that and explore those spaces of like, it's such a cliche. And I think Michael Pollan talked about it really well, which was like a lot of the things you discover are these Hallmark cards that you then bring back and are like, I found a new Hallmark card. And people are like, okay. It's all about love. It's all about love. And, and this thing that there's this thing of just like, right. But it is profoundly is all about love. And like, if we, if we can all kind of understand that rather than superficially understand that, you know, rather than Hallmark card it, like feel it in our gut. Um, you know, like one of the first things that sort of a silly way is like, oh, right, that's what like Jesus was babbling about was like, you're supposed to love each other. And then the Beatles did all their work and ultimately came up with like, it's just the all you need is love. And then, you know, like it's over and over the big thinkers, Gandhi, whoever, like they did, Martin Luther King did all, so much work to just go like, fucking people, wake the fuck up and love each other. Like this is what it's about. So um, I, I think it, it made funny. it... <laughs> Sorry. I was going to tell you, I, I interviewed Rick Doblin for, for the show a couple months ago, and I asked because, you know, he works with MDMA, which is an empathogen. It is not a hallucinogen, right? So the, the concept of MDMA is it, it opens up your heart and allows you to have a better exploration of your own traumas, your own pain, uh, to shed them and to feel empathy for everybody and everything. And I said, have you ever thought about just sending some to the White House to make yeah. sure that the guys there have this. Um, you know, it sounds to me like what you're describing is, it, is this something that you think that should almost be like a, a rite of passage for everybody as they become an adult, that they have one of these experiences so that we can all love each other better? Um, I think that, you know, like the, the, what I would say is I'm not an advocate for everyone taking it. Like I, I wouldn't take that. I, I do think it's a very personal journey. Life is for sure. Um, that, that everyone's brain is wired differently. These drugs aren't good for some brains. Um, I would, I would say that, that um, I am an advocate for rational conversation and a huge advocate for exploration. Now the first hunk of exploration is if this is something you're thinking about is read a thousand books watch this documentary, watch other documentaries, read Michael Pollan's book, you know, like, like do the work. Um, don't take this lightly. It's not, it, it, it doesn't work if you take it lightly, you know, like, you, you know, like this is something that with, with, it's like when people do like diet fads, I'm going to lose 10 pounds. I'll take pills and I'll lose. And it's like, well, no, that doesn't quite work. If you really do the work and change your diet and change the way you think about yourself and do the exercise, and then integrate that into your life and keep that going, it can profoundly change who you are. It's kind of the same thing that, that, um, that I, I and, and what I would say, I think everybody should be open to this being a tool for everybody to use as a choice for themselves, if, if that's a long-winded way of saying it. But No, 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 that was great. Um, all right, I got three more questions. You've been really sure. generous with your time. Um, I'm looking at this, the art behind you. Yes. And The Simpsons, 
you know, you were a writer for The Simpsons, and there have been so many episodes that were psychedelic in nature. You can't tell me that the writer's room wasn't using. Um, it's funny. I think that, that, you know, like the writer's room in general has a little bit of like, you know, the stereotypical like nerdy, like bookwormy uh, analyzing the world take on it. So, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know if everyone's had psychedelic experiences there. I would guess actually probably not. But you're, wor- <laughs> you're working in a space where you, have, you can explore the world through any character's eyes at any time. You can do a story that's set on the moon or in someone's brain or in the desert as easily as you can do anything else. That like pitching and working at The Simpsons, you kind of have to break your brain open enough to go like, where do stories exist? How do we see the world? What what's a new place we can do this? We're not just going to sit around the kitchen table and do jokes. That's the show, and and then time, add time to it. Thirty years, you got to explore some weird corners of the world to keep that thing going. You know, um, mm-hmm. it lends itself to psychedelic imagery. You know, like you have the tools to make kind of kind of anything. Um, the first show I actually worked on, I got there in season seven and they were just finishing. Um, the animatic is like the first phase of animation where there's like a uh, pen drawings of everything that have been half animated. So you can kind of start to see how the story's gelling. And then they do a rewrite. And the very first rewrite I did there was um, the chili cook-off episode where Homer eats ghost pepper, whatever they were, peppers from the jungle and has this an incredible trip um, and actually seeks his soulmate and falls in love with Marge all over again. And Johnny Cash is his spirit animal and all this stuff. There's cliches and there's reasons we shouldn't have spirit animals, all that. It's an amazing episode. And was, I was really like, Oh, I'm not just, I'm not writing at the Simpsons. I'm writing at the Simpsons. This is insane. You can write anything. So that was, um, you know, and I, and then I ended up writing, you know, Mr. Spark was the first episode I wrote, which was in a weird way, dabbled in psychedelics was like, let's look at the world through this Japanese lens. I mean, Homer, Homer's brain broke and he was like, what's happening to me? Like, where am I? Um, and then I also got to write the, um, the Doan in the wind, which was a little bit of, um, uh, you know, Homer ends up dosing, dosing the town with kind of a Ben and Jerry's like, like farmers, juice guys, uh, harvesting their field and giving everyone a dose. So I was fully, I was like, oh yeah, well, let's, how can we do more of this? Like we should be doing a psychedelic episode every year, you know? Um, we did get to actually interview Jerry Greenfield for the documentary. So we got one of Ben and Jerry's in this and just had, he's another person with just what a great perspective on the world of like, he found through psychedelics ice cream. I was like, well, that's a pretty good, <laughs> pretty good realization. Ice cream. Yeah. Um, but yes, Simpsons. Yeah. yeah. So behind me, I don't know if you, how much of this people are going to see, but I can see all, they can see all of it. Um, we did a, so did- we did a, I have a, a music charity that I, I founded, um, out on Nantucket Island, um, that is now spread across the country, but that supports teens and kids music programs. Uh, there's a lot of teen suicide where it came from and we were looking to help out. And, um, last year we did a fundraiser with Shepard Ferry at his gallery where we had, about 60 artists reinterpret Mr. Sparkle. And then we sold those at auction. I couldn't resist. I probably bought six of the 60 because I was like, oh no, I got to get that one. I got to get that one. But I'll give you a quick, right. a quick close up tour. So you got, um, that, that one is join me or die. That's pretty trippy. Um, this one is Homer battling a mushroom human <laughs> with uh, donut hands. This is a buddy of mine out, out on, um, named Greg Deal, who's a native American artist. And, uh, and uh, dude, who's he's amazing. Um, that's a wood carving of uh, Homer. And up there, this is by an artist named Serotonin's Serotonin's. Anyway, pretty one of the trippier things in the exhibit. But yeah, that was all fun. We're big. Melissa and I are huge Shepherd Fairy fans. Uh, yes. We literally just before lockdown. We were in Miami and went to Windward Walls and spent yeah. a lot of time looking at his stuff there. And it was just, it's, it's fabulous. Um, all right. So my favorite question I ask everybody is about failure, right? Because I don't believe people are successful by accident. I think that we fail until we succeed and we learn from our failures, right? You say, oh, that, that fucking hurt. I don't want to do that again. So let me do something else. You talk about how failure has shaped 
you to be the success that you are because you are def the definition of success in comedy. I mean, you worked for David Letterman, you've written The Simpsons, The New Girl, which by the way, my son Nathan, my 13 year old, his favorite show. Um, so, you know, how, how did failure shape your success? Um, I, it's interesting. Failure is a big one for me. And I, I, one of the, one of the first like big topics that I wrestled with as like a young adult was the idea of fear of failure and this thing that it fear of failure will stop you from almost everything in your life. And if you can grapple with that and come up with this, this, you, you said it very well, but like, if you can learn how to fail, um, you know, there, I, I don't know if it's exactly what Wilco is saying with that. You got to learn how to die. Uh, song is, is just like, but that always resonates with me. It's like, right. You got, you can't be afraid of failure, death. If you can get past it. Now death's a tough one. I don't, I don't have the answer for that, but like, but I, I mean, um, if once you figure out that success comes from 10 failures, like then that makes nine failures fine. Now, if you have a hundred failures in a row and those successes are never coming, like re reassess what you're shooting at. But like, I really do think like, you know, things like, um, you know, booking interviews for this, it really was like one in 20 or one, at least one in 10, if not one in 20 people said, said, um, yes, you know, and I'm like, well, I can, I can look at the world through 19 no's, or I can look at the world through one yes. And like, you got, you gotta, you gotta find a place where those 19 no's don't hurt and crush you, you know, um, mm -hmm. and, and, and keep moving. So fear of failure is a big one. I always, I talk to my kids about that, that it's okay if occasionally you're nervous about talking to someone and, and, and it doesn't go your way and they don't want to talk to you. And then it's like, okay, move on to the next one. You will find people who want to talk to you. You'll find jobs that you, you, that you'll, you'll get, and there's jobs you won't. It's okay. We all have a million failures in life. You can't, you can't, beat yourself up for those. All right. My last question um, we ask always is if you picked up the Boston Globe tomorrow or Variety or the LA Times or the Wall Street Journal. What's the one story about psychedelics that you wish you would see, right? The thing that, that, that the mainstream media doesn't quite get yet. What is that? I mean, I, I think so. So, um, you know, I think Charles Grobe in our documentary really like is the voice of rational conversation about this through it in a very dry way. We all fell in love with Dr. Grobe. You know, I spent, he, he gave us so much, so many facts and so much, you know, like this is his life's work in just a very methodical. And he's like, here's mm -hmm. the fact, you know, he talks about his dream being that there, there are, are therapeutic centers in nature with people who know what this stuff does, who can, can figure out if it's been, um, you know, where the source is and that it's safe, you know, what the dosage is for people and find, and people can go to these places and, and get what they need from them. Um, and that those aren't illegal or thought of as like drug centers, you know, and I, I think that's, that would be my, you know, I, I'm with him. I a hundred percent support that. That would be a beautiful thing to happen for the mental health, for the mental health of, of the world. Amen. You, 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 you had me at hello. <laughs> Cannabis! Cannabis!